Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Delight to be back again. Uh, my talk tonight is uh, quite different in a, many ways from this morning. Um, it's more like a fireside chat. <clears throat> if you had told me 10 years ago tonight that I would be speaking at an alien cosmic expo <laughs> in Brantford, Ontario tonight, I would have wondered about your sanity. And uh, don't say you wonder about mine because I'm here. But um, it was the furthest thing from my mind. Absolutely not in it at all. For a couple of years, a young, at that time, uh, a young man by the name of Pierre Junot from Ottawa had been sending me uh, material about UFOs and the ET phenomena. And uh, I'm as honest as I can possibly be, so I said, Pierre, I haven't got time to read it, which was the truth. And he said, well, don't worry about it. Just put it away for that proverbial rainy day when you have got time to read it. So I put it on the shelf and uh, just left it there. Then uh, sometime later he asked me to watch a special on ABC television uh, put together by Peter Jennings, the late Peter Jennings from Ottawa, Ontario, on this subject of UFOs. I said, okay. I'll take, I forget whether it was two or three hours. And I watched it, and um, I must admit that I thought, why would former Air Force officers and former um, airline pilots and policemen and air traffic controllers all say that they had seen UFOs if they hadn't? I mean, what point would there have been in telling lies? and going on television to say, I saw it, if they didn't see it. So that was put back in the back of my uh, mind. To, and uh, that was it for a while. And then Pierre sent me a copy of a book called The Day After Roswell, written by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Ro uh, uh, Corso. And I said, well, that looks interesting. So I'll take it on holidays and read it, because about the only time I have to read are holidays. And I can tell you, I can hardly wait until next Tuesday. <laughs> uh, and maybe if sometimes at Christmas, I get a, an extra book or so in. And so when summer came that year, I guess it was 2004, I looked for the book, and I couldn't find it. So I took the life of Pi, and I enjoyed it very much. And I must admit, maybe I'm not with it, but I didn't know until fairly late on in the book whether it was fact or fiction. But it was enjoyable. The following year, which was 2005, I was looking for another book, and again, I couldn't find it. But there, staring me in the face from my shelf, library shelf was the day after Roswell. I said, hey, that'll be fine. So I took it with me to uh, 
our place in Muskoka. We have a, a little place that my late wife and I ran as a tourist resort for about 45 years, an old farmhouse and 10 cabins. Uh, 11 years ago, we converted to uh, housekeeping cabins. Uh, and incident, that was the year she died. The two were not directly re uh, connected, but uh, the time had come to have less work, and uh, so we converted. But I went up and uh, sat in one of those big Muskoka chairs by the lake and started to read the day after Roswell. Well, right from the beginning, <clears throat> I found it very compelling. And I hadn't gone very far until I started comparing it with the life of Pi. I said, this is different because the generals that are mentioned here and the Air Force bases that are mentioned here, I recognize from my days in national defense. So I was familiar with them and I said, this has got to be the real thing. Uh, so I was reading away and my nephew Philip uh, came along and he was staying in one of the cabins. He said, what are you reading? I told him. He said, well, I'm a skeptic. And I said, well, you know, you're entitled to be a skeptic, a free country, more or less. And uh, so he went home and two days later he phoned and said, I called the general and told him what you were reading and he said, every word is true and more. Where can I get a copy of the book? So I told him. In the meantime, I had finished the book and decided that there were issues that had to be in the public domain. This is important stuff. This is an area which could affect and is affecting the world at large. And the people of the United States who are paying for it, uh, as well as the rest of us, really had the right to know what was going on. So uh, I decided that uh, something had to be done. And uh, just so happened that a couple of ufologists, one was Victor Vigiani, who uh, presented here earlier, I think today, uh, and Mike Bird had invited me to a symposium at the University of Toronto. And I had absolutely no intention of going, none. But sometimes, and this is an admission of a Nazi spy or whatever, I can procrastinate. And I hadn't got around to telling them. So after reading the book, I changed my mind. And I said, there is a heaven-sent opportunity to say something in the public domain, and I better consider it uh, better consider it very seriously. So two things. Um, I decided I first had to check with my fiance. Um, my late wife had died, as I indicated, and uh, and I was about to marry the widow of my best friend ever. And we were getting married one week to the day after the symposium, on October the 1st, 2005. So I phoned her and told her about this. And I must be honest, she was a little bit less than enthusiastic. <laughs> uh, but uh, she's a good sport. And so finally she said, well, if you think it's important to do, why, that's okay. And I said, don't worry, it's just a one-off one thing. You know, I'll get it out there. And, That'll be it. So uh, that was one hurdle over. And the next one was uh, I decided I'd better check with the general. I had met him at an air show. And so I phoned my nephew and asked for his phone number and asked him to give him a heads up that I would be calling. So uh, he gave me the phone number. and. Uh, I guess the following day I phoned, and before I could even say, hello, how are you, he said, every word is true and more. <laughs> Literally. And then he spent the next 20 minutes telling me about the more. 
to the extent that he could within, you know, a reasonable observance of his oath. But the most important thing he said was, there have been face-to-face -face meetings between United States officials and extraterrestrials from other star systems, period. So, with that assurance, I phoned uh, Victor and uh, Mike and said that uh, I, would, I would show up. I had very little time to prepare, so I just dashed something off. Other presenters uh, at that uh, time were Stanton Friedman, who has been here all week, weekend, and uh, I think it was Richard Dolan, and, uh, and the third one was probably uh, Steve Bassett. I was the last one to speak, and I didn't have a long speech, but at the end of the speech, I said, UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying over your head. And that gave me the dubious distinction of being the first person of cabinet rank in the GA group of countries to ever say categorically, didn't say maybe, maybe I think so, I'm told, or any of this nonsense, I said, UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying overhead. Because I knew that they were, and uh, I was quite willing to say so, even though there was a certain amount of risk involved. Well, uh, instead of being a one-off thing, The mail began to pour in from all over the world. Documents, some classified, some unclassified. Some were garbage, but I soon, you know, being a farm boy, I know the difference between wheat and chaff. And uh, so I could tell pretty well what was bona fide. And, uh, and so I, uh, I read these things. And then the books started pouring in. I don't know how many books came in, but as a rough guess, probably about 20 in the first month or so. And I read every single one of them. And I've frankly read a lot since, too, and find them very uh, entertaining and educational. Uh, then I st started to be asked about uh, about briefings. And Dr. Uh, Stephen Greer, the medical doctor who gave up his practice to, uh, to go into this area full time, was going to be in uh, Toronto, so uh, I guess I forget whether it was Victor or Mike that he uh, got in touch with. And so we had lunch down on the, uh, the waterfront, and he briefed me for three hours. And he told me a lot of useful things, including some of the things that people in high places didn't know, and how potential presidents would swear that they were going to make this all public when they became president, and how one in particular, who shall be nameless, uh, vowed that he would, and then a couple of men came and had a little visit with him in his office, and I guess we don't know what they said, but we can surmise that perhaps they said, you know, Mr. President-elect, it would not be a wise thing for you to do, because he never did. And uh, so uh, that was, it was a wonderful briefing, and, and actually uh, Steve Greer and I have been friends ever since, and I follow his wife Emily's health very closely and keep in touch. And he is, in my opinion, one of the titans of ufology. Paula Harris flew from Italy to interview me, and uh, she gave me a copy of her book, Connecting the Dots. I don't know how many of you have read it, but she had a, a long interview in that with the Monsignor Balducci, a, v a Vatican radio uh, person, and, uh, which I read with interest. And she asked him if he was speaking for the Vatican, and of course he said no, but the pontiff uh, sometimes listens to my broadcasts. And the message really was, no, 
she wasn't he wasn't speaking for the Vatican, but the Vatican was well aware of what he was saying. And he was saying, in effect, uh, this is a real situation, and we're uh, knowledgeable, and we uh, are not uh, unduly concerned, and we will uh, follow with interest and, uh, and be part of it. So uh, it was good to know that uh, that the Vatican was aware, there are stories that their awareness went away back of to the early days. Well then, uh, I got an email from Nick Pope, who was at the time the uh, desk man for the United Kingdom Department of uh, Defense for UFOs. And he said uh, he would be interested in seeing me sometime. And it was just, uh, serendipitous, I guess, that uh, my wife and I and another couple were uh, going to the Middle East because I had decided to write the book, uh, Light at the End of the Tunnel, and uh, I wanted to comment on the situation in the Middle East, but I wanted to see it firsthand before commenting. It's a wise thing if you can uh, afford to do it. And so we, uh, we went to the Middle East via London. And while there, I invited them to lunch. And uh, we had a good chat uh, about the only thing that we could share that was on the record, really, was that the, their incidents of, uh, of sightings, the division between natural phenomena and uh, unidentified, objects was about the same as the Canadian experience. And I noticed from the statistics uh, from the presenters over this week that the, the US was not actually that much different from the UK and Canada. So uh, when we parted, he handed me two pieces of paper and said, here are two cases that you might be interested in following up on. And one of them was the Rendlesham Forest case which is one of the most famous, of course, and one of the most uh, do best document, documented uh, cases in all ufology. So uh, I took that home with me, and the reason he gave it to me was because it had somehow gotten into the public domain. It was supposed to have been classified, but the British leaked it sometime at a party, and it got into the papers, and then, of course, it was, uh, it was public after that. So uh, we went on to the Middle East and uh, visited five countries there and during the course of our stay. And uh, I put a section about that in my book, The Light at the End of the Tunnel, which uh, I think you would find interesting. Then, uh, Let's see, the next thing that happened was later that spring, Dr. Michael Salas invited me to, uh, incidentally, I think he's just written a new book, probably worth getting, to give the keynote address at the Extraterrestrial Civilizations and World Peace Conference in Kona Kalua, uh, Hawaii. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, but uh, it was a strange one of giving an address to people, all of whom knew more about the subject than I did. But I wasn't really talking about UFOs. I was not a ufologist. I am not a ufologist. I never will be. I'm a politician, an economic maverick, and uh, I'm very much interested in ufology, extraterrestrial things and their technology because they have such a profound impact, have had, on our daily lives, and maybe more profound even in the years to come as to what happens to our planet and to us. So uh, a couple of things happened there. There was a bit of melodrama. A chap from the CIA phoned and wanted to talk to me, and uh, Paula Harris ran a, a sort of barrier and made sure that I was never available when he was calling. So I never get, did get to talk to him, and probably it was a good thing because I might have been compromised in some way. Uh, 
And there were other cases of possible uh, compromise. One of the people that phoned immediately, I went, uh, went public, was the Prince of Liechtenstein, who I strongly suspect is a member of the enlarged uh, MJ-12 international, whatever it is now, and probably was then. And he was very anxious to get together. It just didn't work out. He invited me to the palace, which I've never uh, taken up on. And, uh, and so, again, probably avoiding the, the temptation to be compromised and to have somebody just say, well, why don't you just kind of keep quiet and, uh, and not make a big fuss about this? So uh, while we were there, which is a, it's a great spot for a, a convention, I met uh, Robert Salas. The way it happened, Mike Bird uh, was there, as I mentioned, and the, uh, I said, where's a decent restaurant? He said, well, there's one down at the end of the street. So I said, come with us and have dinner, which he did. We walked down the street, and uh, just as we were about to go up the steps, uh, say hello to the maitre d', he said, there's one of the presenters coming up. And he said, uh, I said, ask them to join us, which they did. And it was Captain Retired, the United States Air Force, uh, Michael, leads to Robert Salas. And uh, he told his story, which I mentioned this morning, of his seven of his Minutemen 1 missiles being shut down, one at a time. And uh, he wrote a book about it, which he uh, gave me a copy of, and I still have it in my library. And as I said this morning, and I'll condense this, that it was widely investigated, but it was never, ever really clear what happened. Whether it was a deliberate shutdown, or whether it was just the electromagnetic effects of the vehicle itself. Well then, uh, in February 2007, my wife and I went to the National Prayer Breakfast in, uh, in uh, Washington. Her late husband had been involved in the National Prayer Breakfast movement, both in the United States and Canada. And neither of us had been there for a while, so uh, we decided we would go, which we did. And uh, I found out that Colonel Halt lived just about an hour or so away from uh, Washington. So I phoned him and asked him if he would see me. And he said, well, normally I don't take calls on this subject. He said, but if you were recommended by Nick Pope, I will talk to you. So I rented a car and we went down and I interviewed him in the uh, his gated village that what he was in charge of. We had lunch together there. And uh, a two hour interview, which I recorded and had transcribed, and I put a lot of it in light at the end of the tunnel, just snatches in the latest book, but a lot of it in light at the end of the tunnel, because it was so representative of what these cases are like. Here's this tough, no-nonsense colonel, deputy commander of the twin bases there, who first of all, when the NCOs uh, discovered the sightings and reported them, was skeptical, uh, didn't know what was up, uh, just thought maybe they had seen some lights in the forest and heaven only knows what those lights might have been. But that uh, Christmas night when they were having a party and uh, his boss, the base commander, was giving out some prizes to, uh, to some of the uh, troops for doing a splendid job, uh, designated him and said, Halt, you go out and find out what this is all about. So, Colonel Halt said, I went out there and I said to myself, I'm going to put an end to this bloody nonsense once and for all. Instead of that, when he got down there and saw for himself what was happening, 
and saw the marks in the grass where it had landed and saw it <coughs> flying over their missile storage space and so on, he said, it changed my life forever. And as you probably know, he has often been, well, not often as a presenter, but he has been involved in getting that message out. Recently, I saw something very, very disgusting, and that was that his former commander said that it was a hoax and that, you know, poor Colonel Halt, uh, I guess, just couldn't cope with it. And that, excuse me, that was a lie typical of the lies that the United States Air Force have been telling for, for uh, 68 years, since 1947. It really despicable, in my opinion. And uh, the reason I put it so much of it in my book was because everything happened that you're told happens in these cases. You filed reports, they went missing, couldn't be found. Uh, would talk to one of his colleagues about it, and they couldn't remember the conversation. All of the typical things that happen in these military cases. And so I put a lot of that stuff in because it just explains how the system works and how the bureaucracy come, moves in, takes over, and tries to put everything in a, in a drawer somewhere, a locked drawer, and. Uh, and never have it uh, rear its ugly head again. Later that year, I attended the fifth annual UFO uh, crash retrieval conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. And by then, I had decided to write the book for sure. And I had picked the title right at the end of the tunnel. And I am, had decided to put in a chapter uh, entitled, We Are Not Alone in the Cosmos. So I decided that I should go and listen, not be a participant, but just listen to all of the presenters and see if there were things that, uh, that they knew that I didn't, because I always learn something. Everybody always has something to add to this very uh, intricate puzzle. One of the things that I remember clearest was one of the presenters talking about uh, electrifying the leading edges of airplanes and having the drag reduced by 90%. I've never heard anything about it since. I checked it out with one of my prime sources and he said, well, it was true, but he'd never heard a figure that high. He had, I think he said maybe 70%. But gee whiz, if he could cut down the fuel consumption by reducing drag that much, that's something that should have been put into effect decades ago, but still it isn't because it's a black ops and they only let you in what they want you to know and nothing else. But um, one of the most interesting things was that uh, Ryan Wood, he and his uh, father, Dr. Bob Wood, had organized this uh, trash retrieval conference and incidentally, he has a book where I think he lists something like 85 crashes over a period of a century. And the evidence in some of them is not absolutely conclusive, but in most it is. And even if only half of them were totally documented, that's a lot of, of crashed vehicles. And I've just got the name of somebody whose name I already knew uh, two days ago and his phone number who was in the Army and uh, who was involved in uh, crash retrievals, eight, uh, including two from Vietnam, and uh, not only crash vehicles, but in two or three cases uh, with, uh, with live EBs uh, recovered at the same time. The EBs being, as you know, the extraterrestrial biological entities, as they were so called. And um, the other thing that uh, Ryan Wood did he arranged for a private briefing for his dad and me uh, on Area 28. Now you hear a lot about Area 51 and a lot about Area 64 and there are others, but Area 28 is one that I don't hear very often. 
is right out in the middle of the desert. And our briefers were former intelligence officers who had worked there. And so they were a little bit limited on what they could say. But they insisted that everything that they told us was in the public domain. So uh, they went ahead and gave us a, a pretty full briefing. One of the things they had that was interesting, I guess it was a Google map from space. And here were these little trucks about an inch long, or so it seemed in the, in the uh, photographs, crawling across the desert and disappearing down a hole into the underground works. And what they do there, I'm not sure, it was not explicitly stated. I think the guess was that that's where one of the places where they were developing weapons, the kinds of weapons that they uh, have developed now for, uh, for space use and for, uh, for other things of Tesla type uh, stuff. But it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was all very fascinating. But while there, I had lunch with Linda Moulton Howe, and she briefed me, and uh, some of you have probably read some of her books. Uh, one of them uh, was the, uh, she's the author of uh, Other Realities, High Strangeness. And I guess what I would say to you, if you haven't read them, make sure that you're into the subject well before you read them because they're something that, I guess based on my experience, you have to have a fair grounding in the subject to be able to put up with so much high strangeness. <laughs> and we've seen some high strangeness around here this weekend too. And you keep finding out more and more high strangeness and eventually it no longer seems as high strangeness, it just seems as something else you're learning. And I, I the best line I think in my book light at the end of the tunnel, was I didn't know how much I didn't know because I didn't know how much there was to know. And that's as true today as it was then. Because the subject is like a, a scroll that opens in both directions. Not just one direction and goes back in, but in both directions and just keeps going on and on and on out. I guess to infinity until, you know, all this questions are answered if they ever are. But uh, she is a person with, uh, with a lot of knowledge, written a lot of books, been on a lot of programs, done a lot of presenting, and she has uh, good sources within the United States government. Then uh, a major coup while I was there, I decided that uh, I really couldn't published the book without having talked to some people who had been abducted. And my guardian angel was really working for me because um, I had a friend in the U.S., former naval rating, who said, uh, I know um, Travis Walton very well and he would like to meet you. And uh, so, I, well, I said I would like to meet him. Well, we determined he lived about uh, an hour's flight from Las Vegas. And so I phoned him and he and his wife came to the conference. And I spent much of the, uh, of the three days with them. I interrogated uh, Travis for uh, three hours. And by the end of that time, I was absolutely convinced <clears throat> that he was telling the truth. You may or may not remember the, uh, the movie fire in the sky that was based on his uh, experience, except the movie people uh, <coughs> really twisted and turned the, uh, the situation. As he said, they had to jazz it up. Well, they really jazzed it up. I would say that it was worse than that, but uh, I spent enough time with them that there was no doubt, and I was quite prepared to go out on a limb and say so. Well, the other person, um, was Jim Sparks. Jim Sparks has been abducted probably more than just about anybody. So many times he can't even count them. Two or three things that are unique in his case, he was conscious often throughout. And he was interested enough that they taught 
the Greys taught him their language. I don't know, I haven't talked to anybody else who said that they had learned uh, the language so that they could converse in the language. And um, Jim, uh, again, I, I can't remember exactly how long our interview was, but it was something of the order of two or three hours. And I was convinced that he too was telling the truth. And he gave me a copy of his book. Near the end of the book, he had most of his time had been spent with the Greys, but then he had a final meeting with one of the branches of the reptilians, and he met with them in a deserted uh, amusement park. And uh, they went through the business of how we are very, very poor stewards of our planet. We have this wonderful planet, one of the best, I guess, I don't know, but certainly reputed to be one of the best that people know about, and we are doing to it some terrible things. And so they showed him pictures of beautiful forests, and then after they'd been clear cut, and uh, pictures of beautiful, clean running streams, and then later with dead fish floating down. And from the pristine to the reality of what we have done with our home. And, uh, and finally he said, uh, does, does that mean you've given up on us? He said there was a long pause. And he said, well, have you? And they said, well, not yet. Uh, but we have to change. And his, his record of this uh, interview with them was so moving and so profound that I asked him if I could use the last half of it verbatim. And I think I have it in both books, but certainly it's in light at the, day, at the end of the tunnel. And uh, it, it makes you really stop and think. And one of the things that they said was that they, they were not the ones who had done a lot of the so-called dirty work, that this had been done by us. But for that reason, there should be a general amnesty. Presumably the National Security Act should be suspended, either taken off the books or at least suspended, while people who have been working in the black ops and who have done some of these things can give their evidence publicly without fear of winding up in jail for the rest of their lives. And so they made this case very strongly and Jim has been uh, promoting it and I have been promoting it for the same reason, that you're not gonna get people uh, uh, giving testimony to congressional committees or anybody else if they think that it's, uh, it's gonna wind up uh, in a court case that winds up with a life sentence or 15 or 20 years or whatever. So uh, that was a, a, a quote that I thought was so important that I had to put in. Well, fast forward, Light at the End of the Tunnel was published. It got good reviews and the never-ending round of conferences and uh, radio and TV shows accelerated. And uh, then in May of 2013, I was uh, one of the people that uh, Steve Bassett recruited for the Citizens uh, Disclosure Hearing. And I think you probably know what the format was. Steve recruited six former congressional people, five four former congressional persons, and one former senator, and had them act as a panel, a mock uh, congressional panel that took evidence under oath. And he assembled 40 witnesses. And we met in the um, press club in Washington. We started on a Monday morning. And of the six, 
there were six skeptics. There wasn't one of them that believed that UFOs were real. Heaven only knows how much money had been spent on them while they were members of Congress. But they certainly didn't know. They didn't know anything about it. So we started in, and after a day or two, uh, one of them would be convinced, and then another, and another during the week. One of the former Congress ladies uh, said it was the Rendlesham Forest case that uh, convinced her because it had been so well documented. And I can understand that because the presentations were fantastic. Finally, we came to Friday, and we just had one holdout. And he happened to be the chair. They rotated the chair. And he just happened to be the chair on the Friday. And I had not spoken. I had the chance to speak twice, but I turned it down because I didn't have that much to say. <clears throat> and um, so I was the last speaker. The day before, I had looked at what I had prepared to say and said, in the context, it wasn't that bad, but you know, in the context, it was just garbage because it's repeating everything that had already been said. And so I just tore it up and took scrap paper and started making some notes. And when my turn came, they gave me double time, usually they have 10 minutes, but they gave me 20, uh, to say my piece. And uh, so I, I did. I only spent probably two or three or four minutes on UFOs answering a couple of questions that the chair had asked that hadn't been answered. One of them was, you know, where do these people come from? And I think I gave him five examples of where they might have come from. And there was one other question uh, that uh, I answered for him. And then I said, I would like to, rather than continue in this vein, to put this in context. And then I did, what, in effect, what I did this morning. I put it in the context of the worldview, that there are people in the United States, the cabal, as I call them in my books, who have plans for us that, in my opinion, are not appropriate. And I, I did mention one name because, uh, and that was David Rockefeller. You have to be careful, careful when you start mentioning names. But I had quotes in my book from what had been reported that he had said at the Bilderberger meeting. And uh, in effect, he had said, the world would be better off run by bankers and elite. Well, I don't agree with that. Because I said, these people have been running the United States for the last 50 or 60 years, and look at the mess it's in. And Steve Bassett had given me about five pages of terrible things that are happening in the United States where their, their achievements have been way below international standards in healthcare and education and other things. And I would never have created a list like that because if you know, somebody from outside the country would be presumptuous, it would be resented. But it was his list and I just put it in with, the, with his permission. And it's not a great record. Not a great record. And so I said, this is what those people have done to us. Is this what we want? And in effect went on to, to talk about the cabal and what it was like and who was in it and who wasn't and the shadow government and so on without going into a lot of detail because you can't say a lot of things in 20 minutes. Actually, I hadn't quite finished, so they gave me two extra minutes. And uh, I took them, and I was racing at about uh, 100 words a minute by the last minute. And, uh, and it was, I wouldn't say it was wildly received, but it was received. And then Steve posted all these things on the internet. And uh, 
After a couple of days, somebody phoned me and said, hey, did you know how many people have looked at that stuff? I said, no, I forget the figures now, but uh, it was quite a few thousand. And a couple of days later, they phoned again and said, yeah, you know, have you seen the numbers? I said, no, I, have, I haven't got time to look at those kinds of numbers. It just kept going up and up. For some reason, my evidence was taken off the, the website. And I guess that was just coincidence. Uh, perhaps. But in the meantime, people had made copies. And it went viral. And I think approximately 5 million people saw it. But it was at that stage that I decided to write The Money Mafia, A World in Crisis. It was because it was a hunger for the truth, and you could feel it, you could sense it. But what you were facing was a population so naive on so many subjects, whether it's the money aspect, global warming, or the ET file and the combination, and who is controlling which. And uh, so I worked like a you-know-what for the balance of the year and all the, most of the next year, getting it done and, and getting it out, because it's important that people have access to what's going on. They're not going to get it from the New York Times. They're not going to get it from the Washington Post. They're not going to get it from ABC or NBC. The only way they get it these days are from people on the internet who take the trouble to dig out the facts or who write books. And the problem is that most people don't read it, but they don't bother read book, uh, books. And Alan Dulles, uh, when he was asked years ago how they got away with the easy time they gave the Nazis at the end of World War II, he said, because Americans don't read books. And I think the, tr the same is true here. We just don't have time. I'm guilty. I'm going to take a month off and do it. I don't know how many I'll get through, but quite a few. It's difficult to sit down and go through a serious subject and absorb it. And that is really the situation that we're in today. So, uh, some of the things that happened in the interim when I was just uh, working on the book, more information started pouring in. Just a couple of examples, and then I want to wind up. One was 9-11. If you compare the two books, Light at the End of the Tunnel and The Money Mafia, you'll see that in Light at the End of the Tunnel, I say there were a number of unanswered questions. That's true. Some very serious unanswered questions about what happened on that momentous day. In the current book, I say flatly, the George W. Bush administration senior officials knew weeks ahead what was going to happen and didn't stop it. And I quote Judy Wood, of course, uh, in her wonderful book, that thick full of evidence, but others too, because there's a general there who went through this very, very difficult, how, how, do you, how do you bring yourself to believe that your government would sell you down the river, and lie to you, and lie to the world? It's tough stuff. I mean, it's all like, almost like a member of the family saying, you know, Someone's been unfaithful or they've committed a horrible crime and you say, oh no, no, I know them too well, that, that wouldn't happen. Yet, 
when you look at the evidence, it did happen. And it had a profound effect on the whole world. In the United States, defense expenditures were doubled. They were already high, too high, but they were doubled. In that country and in Canada, rights were taken away one at a time. New departments were established with virtually dictatorial rights. The rule of law is fast becoming just a memory. Habeas corpus just celebrated the 800th anniversary, no longer observed. And these are the things that men and women died for in World War I and World War II. My wife and I, in November, went over to visit the World War I and World War II battlefields. And it was a profound experience. The misery, the horror. And you wind up saying, war is hell. And we, after 6,000 years, should stop doing it. We should stop trying to build empires, even if it means declaring war on somebody else and killing a lot of our own people and their people too. So uh, I came back more than a little bit despondent because I said to myself, we say that we'll hold the flag high, the banner high. But we haven't. We've let it slip. We've let it slip right down. And everything they fought for is going out the window because the present cabal has a policy of perpetual war. And I'll just repeat it tonight for anybody that wasn't here this morning. This was decided, and this is what General Eisenhower was talking about when he warned the American people about the industrial military complex. He was really warning them about the ET file having, been, having fallen into the wrong hands. And there is evidence to support that point of view. But Werner von Braun told Dr. Carol Rosen, a good friend of mine, and they were working together very closely, and he had mellowed by his uh, later years. He said, they, the industrial military complex, AKA the cabal, have to have an enemy. And he said, first it'll be the communists, and then it will be the terrorists, and then it will be finally the ETs. And you can see that road you can see that progression in process. 9-11 created the terrorists to keep the thing going, to justify huge defense expenditures when they could not possibly be justified otherwise. Well, I have about four minutes left, four or five, and I was told I had five minutes leeway. I hope that still holds, and I'll try not to, uh, to go on beyond that. The money mafia is not exclusive to any one aspect of the uh, problems that exist, but inevitably there were important omissions, and there was one that I just want to mention briefly. My audiologist gave me a book. It's called Chemtrails, Harp, and the Full Spec Spectrum Dominance of Planet Earth by Alana Freeland. And you should write that down and you should get a copy of the book and you should read it if you want to know what's going on in the world. Chemtrails. In the last month I have asked a hundred people if they knew what chemtrails were, and there have only been three or four that did. Would you believe? Every day, we live on the harbor in Toronto, every day, right across the sky, 
My wife and I went to Montreal to celebrate a 100th birthday about two weeks ago. In the morning, the sky was a beautiful blue. I've seldom seen anything so wonderful in my life. We took the early train down. Beautiful blue. We came back late afternoon. It was all gray from the artificial cirrus clouds that the chemtrails make. I can't think of a faster way to get one's blood boiling. I showed one or two of you the picture of my little great-granddaughter that I carry around in my pocket to remind, why, remind me why I'm doing this sort of thing. I'm thinking of her and her parents. It is almost beyond belief to learn the lengths to which the cabal will go in pursuit of world conquest and their new world order. Contrails, chemtrails, poisoning our air, poisoning our water, and poisoning the soil where we grow our food. And imagine doing that to the people who are paying your salaries. Because this isn't exclusively Canadian. It's not exclusively American. My wife and I went to the Turks and Caicos Islands for the first time in February for a few days holiday. We were swimming in the ocean. We were the only ones brave enough to go in for a couple of days. There they were, right out in front, horizon to horizon, contaminating the air all over the world. And this stuff that they're dumping in there, nanoparticles of aluminum, barium, strontium, dried blood, and heaven only knows what else, is doing all these terrible things, not only poisoning us, because the nanoparticles are so small that we ingest them, we breathe them. They go right into the bloodstream and right up to the brain. So they cause premature Alzheimer's, senility, all kinds of other things. We haven't got time to elaborate in, uh, in detail. And if you add HARP to that, you have a system which will allow certain people to kill anyone anywhere in the world anytime at will. So look up, heads up. They can cause storms. They can bring up snowstorm in the winter, in the summer, or they can bring on a huge rainfall or a hurricane season. Worse than that, as I mentioned this morning, they can also create earthquakes that look natural but are not natural. And how can one keep track of what Mother Nature is doing when you have this sort of thing going on? So knowledge is power. And we can write a better history, but only if we know the end game and what our next move should be. And as I mentioned this morning, to put in a plug for the latest book. Both of those two books have action plans. And they're similar, but they're not the same. The last one is more extensive. But it's a list of things that the G20 should do, the United Nations should do, that the United States Congress should do, that the President should do, and that we should do, letting them know that we want them to do the things we want for our preservation as a species on Earth, and not the kind of things that will reduce our population by two-thirds or whatever diabolical move that they have lined up for us. Well, I don't want to end on a note of doom and gloom, uh, because there's too much of that. You're, the papers are filled with it. Uh, there are wonderful things going on in the world. In the postscript, 
to uh, the Money Mafia, you'll find a list of some, just a token, wonderful things that are happening. Individuals starting things that are good and moral and just and really out to express love towards other people and not just greed and saying there's nothing in the world except to get in money. It's an abandonment, basically, of the worship of mammon or of money, which we're all too prone to, uh, to pursue. And what I say is that what we have to have is not just a few thousand of these things, but maybe a thousand thousand. And we can create a tsunami of good and love and care and compassion for other members of the human species. In accordance with the will of the Creator. I'm not a Catholic, but the Pope gets my vote. The only one of the world leaders who in recent times has told the truth about one of the most important issues that we face. We're destroying our, palette, our planet and the perpetual war, new order, world order gang are moving in the wrong way. We have to somehow reverse it. Only a moral and spiritual revolution starting with each one of us, can save it. It is the only hope for light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you very much.